Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Hebrews 10. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have not taken pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. It is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you offered your son Jesus Christ once for all to sanctify us, to set us apart for yourself. We ask, Lord, as your chosen possession, would you speak to us this morning? Open our eyes to see wonderful, portion, wonderful good news in this portion of your scriptures. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, you'll find it helpful to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 40. We're going to be continuing our Advent series in which we've been focusing on the theme of waiting Advent itself is a season of waiting and preparation, anticipation. We celebrate the first advent of Jesus and we expectantly wait for his second advent when he comes to wipe away all our tears and to make all things new. And now we're in the Christmas season, the 12 days of Christmas after Advent. We're also celebrating and anticipating, waiting in the space between these two extraordinary events. And it's in this space between the defeat of death and the death of death that we experience trouble and trials, that we experience a life full of suffering and sorrow. Jesus says it himself. He says, in this world you will face troubles. And this is right where the psalmist finds himself this morning in Psalm 40. He recalls his past circumstances as being laid waste in the pit of destruction and stuck in the swamp of the miry bog. Do you find yourself there? Have you been cast into the pit? Have you been stuck in the swamp of despair? But he doesn't just reflect on the past. He's presently aware that he's encompassed by evil. He's overtaken by his sin. His heart even, it fails him. 
It doesn't work properly. Has evil circled you? Has it circled the wagons all around you ready to devour your life? Have you been overwhelmed by your sin? Have you been faced with its shame and its guilt? Have you carried the weight of its burden and you feel like you can never escape its accusations? Or are you just simply tired? You're just simply tired of living in a world that's gone wrong, that doesn't work properly and your heart fails you. The pit of destruction the miry bog, evil encompassing, overtaken by iniquity, a failing heart. Does this sound familiar? This is 2020. We live Psalm 40 right now. You remember as we began the year in January, institutions and churches and organizations were taking on this slogan, Vision 2020? Right? It was an attempt to, uh, to celebrate or to anticipate the things that we were hoping for in the year 2020. But that vision for all of us got thrown into the pit of destruction called COVID-19. And friends, as we close out this year, we have to confess with the psalmist, I am poor and needy. As for me, I am poor and needy, and it's right there, right in that moment of exasperation, when you've come to the end of yourself that this psalm speaks. It speaks to you, and it says, wait. Wait patiently on the Lord. It will not always be this way. And you wait patiently. By trusting God in the midst of your sin and suffering. The psalmist says in verse 4, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud to those who go astray after a lie. You see, friends, trust is the key to patient waiting. But trusting God doesn't mean that you just sit on your hands. It doesn't mean that you just twiddle your thumbs waiting for everything to come to an end. Trust doesn't mean that you wait passively. Trust takes a particularly active shape in Psalm 40. And we'll see this morning that trust first recalls God's faithfulness, and then it second confesses needs. So let's take a look at that. The first thing we see is that trust recalls God's faithfulness. This is what the psalmist is doing in verses 1 through 10. He recalls, he rehearses, he remembers the deliverance that God has worked in his past sufferings. And this recollection of God's faithfulness is a deeply pers- has a deeply personal dimension. Look with me at verses one to three. He said, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of despair out of the miry bog. And he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. As we said earlier, he describes his previous circumstances with fairly grim language. 
He was in the pit of destruction. He was in a miry bog. The pit of destruction is used here as an image of overwhelming fear and isolation. John Calvin says that there is here an allusion to the deep gulf where the waters gush with a tumultuous force. He shows that he was placed in as imminent peril of death as if he had been cast into a deep pit, roaring with the impetuous rage of waters, and there's no escape. And the miry bog explains that it's no easy task to free him from these calamities that have come upon him. But who is it that the psalmist credits with his liberation? He can't take any credit for himself. He says, it is only the Lord. He's the one who drew me up from the pit of destruction. God took him from the bottomless pit and God set his feet on a rock. God took him from the insecurities of the swamp and he made his feet secure. This is a deeply personal reflection of God's deliverance. But the the psalmist doesn't keep it personal. It's not just he in Jesus. He situates his story within an overarching story of God's deliverance. He says in verse 5, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. He situates his story within a bigger story of deliverance that God is working throughout history. And then he says in verses nine and 10, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I've not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I've not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I've not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. What does he do? The psalmist goes to church and he tells of God's faithfulness to the saints. There's a corporate dimension to this rehearsal of God's deliverance. It's not simply that you keep it to yourself. That doesn't mean that you jump up here and you get behind the pulpit and take the pulpit mic and tell everybody your story. I mean, we're Presbyterians. All things must be done decently and in order. But it does mean that you do share your story with the saints. That they too may know of God's faithfulness in your life. It also means that you come to church week in and week out to recall God's faithfulness. You come to church Sunday after Sunday and rehearse the grand story of God's deliverance. Friends, that's what good liturgy does. It takes you through the motions of the gospel and it invites you to inhabit the gospel, to situate your personal story of deliverance within a bigger, grander story of God delivering the whole world and reconciling it to himself. We walk through these motions week in and week out and you are invited to make it your own and to take your story and see it within a bigger story. And by going through these motions, 
you actually learn to trust. And this is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life. You recall God's faithfulness because you trust him. But at the same time, you learn to trust him by recalling his faithfulness. It's a two-sided coin. You learn to trust by recalling, and you recall because you trust. So friends, trust means that you rehearse, you recall God's faithfulness in the past. You rehearse the gospel personally and corporately with God's people. But then the second thing we see in the psalm is that trust confesses your need. The first part of the psalm proclaims deliverance and liberation from death, but verse 11 takes a turn. And we find the psalmist yet again in another distressing situation. And he responds to the distress by confessing two things. He confesses his sin and he confesses his suffering. We see in verses 11 and 12 that we first confess our sins. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I can't see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Psalmist adds up his sins. He adds them up, and he says that they are more than the hairs on his head. Now, we're not told whether the evil encompassing him is a consequence of his sins, or if they are precursors to his sin. But it really doesn't matter because we understand these spiritual realities. Sometimes you experience distress because of your sin. You experience the natural consequences of your actions. If you punch somebody in a parking lot, you should expect to get arrested. It's a natural consequences to your actions. There are natural consequences. But other times you experience distressing situations which expose your sin. It's like when you shake a glass of water. Water spills out onto the floor, not because the glass was shaken per se, but because there was water in the glass. The distressing situations of your life shake you, but they don't cause you to sin. They just expose the corruption that was already there and your sin spills over and it's exposed. It doesn't cause you to sin, it just reveals what's really inside of you. And friends, pandemics tend to expose our vices. I don't know what that is for you. I don't know if it's some sort of substance or some sort of behavior. I don't know if you're uh, your criticism has been exposed, your critical nature, or maybe your temper has been exposed, whatever that is. You don't have to be blinded in the fog of despair because of your sin. You don't have to walk around as a blind man. The psalmist says that when he adds up his sins, they are more than the hairs on his head. But the good news, previously in verse five, he says, you have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. The good news 
is that God's wondrous deeds of salvation are multiplied. They are the basis for his confession of of faith that you will not restrain your mercy from me. Those sins add up, friends. God's grace and his mercy multiplies. God's grace outruns your sin every time. And so you're free to confess your sins to him because he's a gracious and forgiving God. But you're also free to confess your suffering. A psalmist cries out for deliverance in verses 13 through 15. He says, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. He says that the evil which has encompassed him seeks to snatch away his life. It seeks to devour him and it delights in his hurt. And not only that, but it taunts him in his pain. Have you experienced that? The feeling of being taunted in your own pain. Friends, when words fail you in those moments, this psalm gives you language to confess your sufferings and to cry out to God for help. It doesn't sugarcoat your problems. It doesn't offer you a silver lining to your sufferings. It's tragically honest about the pain of suffering in a broken world. And this cry for deliverance is ultimately based on God's previous acts of deliverance. As the psalmist recalls God's faithfulness to liberate him from the pit of destruction, it enables him to trust God in the present and to cry out for help. This activity of trust, to confess our sins and our sufferings is what the psalmist teaches us this morning. Now, if we've learned anything from 2020, it's that we will inevitably be faced with internal and external distresses. Nothing can keep you from trouble in a broken world. It's just the way it is. But the pilgrimage of faith demands that you take the active steps to recall God's faithfulness and to confess your need. But these activities are difficult because there's part of us that though we remember God's deliverance, we still wonder, will he do it again? Is he really that good? Will he really again take care of me? Can I really trust him? And the answer of the gospel and the answer of Psalm 40 is a resounding yes. Yes, he will. You are free to trust him because God has proven his love for you in his son Jesus. In our epistle lesson earlier, you might have noticed that the words of verses six through eight are put on the mouth of Jesus by the author of Hebrews. And his conclusion is that Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. Jesus fulfills the role of the Old Testament sacrifice by becoming the sin offering, by becoming the burnt offering. 
And by doing so, he opens the way to God through his own flesh. By his once for all sacrifice, Jesus has sanctified you. He's set you apart to belong to God. And friends, you can trust that God will not restrain his mercy because he did not restrain his son. Though he never sinned, Jesus was encompassed by evil. He walked down into the pit of destruction, into the miry bog, and by his victory over death, he became the rock on which we stand. He's the one who makes your steps secure. He's the one that we trust. And he does all of this so that you can say with the psalmist, as for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Friends, when your heart fails you, you don't have to wait anxiously. You don't have to be overwhelmed by your fears and your failures. You can wait patiently. You can trust God by recalling his faithfulness and confessing your needs. And you can do all of this because you belong to God. In Jesus, you have been set apart. You've been set apart and sanctified to become God's own possession. So in this Christmas season, let's not just celebrate the first advent of our Lord Jesus. Let's also anticipate his second advent when he will fill in the pit of destruction, when he will solidify the miry bog when he will wipe away your tears and he will do away with sin and death forever. Do not delay, oh my God. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer this morning. Would you not delay in doing good to your people, in delivering us from the brokenness of the world? Jesus, please come quickly. Make all the sad things come untrue. Wipe away all of our tears. Do away with all of the sin and the distress. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.